with me to 1 Kings 11, 1 through 13, and 41 through 43. This can be found in the Pew Bible, page 291 through 293, or the following Jesus Bible, page 3,362. 1 Kings 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which Yahweh had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had seven hundred wives who were princesses and three hundred concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to Yahweh his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and did not wholly follow Yahweh, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, and the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And Yahweh was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what Yahweh commanded. Therefore Yahweh said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have little ones first grade and under who'd like to go across the way for children's worship where they hear a sermon from this text for their age group, they can line up by the door here and Miss Brittany and our volunteers. No, Miss Brittany's sick today too. Miss Savannah and our volunteers will take them across the way. Well, those of you who've known me for a while probably know that I began preaching very early at the age of 14. By the time I graduated from high school, I was doing pulpit supply in rural churches outside of Memphis where I grew up. And when I went to college, I joined a, a student ministry program that provided opportunities to do pulpit supply almost every other Sunday. So between the ages of 18 and 21, I, I preached basically every other Sunday during the school year. And then during the summer when I was off, I'd try to find a, a, a church where I could fill in for the entire summer and preach every Sunday. And as I preached through those years, I matured exponentially in two skills. One, I did get better at preaching. But second, I got even better at hypocrisy. Why is that? 
Well, because I was preaching in a different church every Sunday, and I had no one church that I was consistently a part of. On the alternating Sundays when I wasn't preaching, I would go to church, but I'd often visit around. I'd be Reformed Baptist for a few months, then I'd be PCA, then I'd go mega church. I was all over the map. The bottom line is I didn't have a community of Christians who were discipling me, who were investing in my spiritual growth, who were challenging me or keeping me accountable. And so while my preaching skills were improving, my soul was rotting. I was not following Christ with any sense of wholehearted commitment or regularity. And so on Friday night, I'm partying like the world, and Sunday morning, I'm standing in the pulpit. I was a decent preacher, but I was a fraud. I was a hypocrite. And in today's text, we see a similar phenomenon in King Solomon. Almost everything we've seen in him in these first 11 chapters of 1 Kings seems so good. He seems like a good and godly king. Last week, the queen of Sheba praised him for how well and how wisely he led his people. And in many ways, he did lead well. But there was this one thing. Look again at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 11. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which Yahweh had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. How does it get to this point? What went wrong? This morning I want to do sort of an autopsy of Solomon's sin. I want to find out what happened with this guy. How did he collapse into failure when everything had seemed so good along the way? When he had wisdom directly imparted to him from God. And as we examine Solomon's sin, I think it will give us insight into our own struggle with sin. Into our own lives and hearts. And it should help us in our battle against our flesh. So how did Solomon get here? Well, it started in secret. The opening line of chapter 11 is almost jarring as you're reading through the book. Things are going so smoothly. Israel has peace. The temple has been built. There's this great interaction with the Queen of Sheba in the previous chapter. Then verse 1 starts, Now Solomon loved many foreign women. Where'd that come from? Well, there are little hints and signs along the way. Chapter 3 of 1 Kings, which we read in our reading plan, begins this way. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of Yahweh and the wall around Jerusalem. Last time I checked in the Bible, Egypt is always the bad guy. So probably not a great idea to make a a, a political alliance with them. Plus, should an Israelite marry a person who doesn't worship Yahweh? Of course not. 
Scripture's really clear about that. So why did Solomon do this? I think the answer can be found in hidden, illicit desires and hidden, illicit, or secular thinking. When we secretly entertain illicit desires and secular thinking, the result is almost always flourishing sin. Let's talk about the illicit desires part first. Solomon wanted something. He desired something. And it's obvious throughout this text that Solomon was not just marrying these women for political reasons. There was a physical, fleshly desire that he had for women who were not Jewish. Now, as an aside, God is not opposed to the idea of people from different tribes, nations, or races intermarrying. Early in Israel's story, we see Rahab and Ruth and others converting to Yahweh and then marrying into Israel. So the issue here is not genetic lineage. It's faithfulness to Yahweh. In short, to make it applicable for you, a Christian should never marry or date a non-Christian. It just doesn't work out well. Our hearts will inevitably be affected. But Solomon didn't care. He was attracted to these women. Those illicit desires were still there. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. King Solomon loved many foreign women. See, it wasn't even just like there was a, a thing about there being many of them as well. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which Yahweh had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. What did Solomon do? In his mind and in his heart, he entertained feelings, desires, that the scriptures had already said were wrong. Illicit desires ferment and flourish in our bellies and our imaginations. Paul compares sin to leaven. It only takes a little bit to spread through the whole loaf of bread. And the place where all this starts is our bellies and our imagination. When I talk about the belly, I'm intentionally borrowing from C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, which I commend to you. It's a quick and easy, well, it's a quick read. It, it, you may need to chew on it a little bit. But when I say the belly, I'm talking about physical, bodily desire. There are some physical desires and impulses that may feel natural to you, but in fact, they are wrong. They can also be emotional desires, relational desires. When I'm talking about the belly, I'm talking about any kind of wanting or desiring born out of our humanness. We're talking about the flesh, the sinful nature. The apostle John, when he's kind of unpacking uh, desire, he puts it into three different categories. And I find these categories helpful. You, You probably heard me say this before. He put it this way. He says, for all that is in the world, The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The King James translates it a different way. It says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
So when we're talking about hidden illicit desires, they tend to fall into these three categories. These desires usually have to do with achieving pleasure, possessions, or prestige. The desire for these three things comes naturally to us as humans. It's a part of our sinful makeup. But when those desires are provoked within us, no one else may know. It's just a desire we have. It's just a feeling we got, a hunger hidden down in our bellies, and we may not know that it's wrong. We may know that it's wrong, but what harm is there in just kind of entertaining that desire for pleasure, for prestige, for possessions? What, what harm is there in just kind of imagining what it might be like to have that thing? Just let, it, let desire linger in the background. It's a problem. Because where does that desire usually go to live? It gets from your belly to your imagination. You begin to imagine what it would be like to satisfy that urge for pleasure, possessions, or prestige. We, we fantasize what it would be like to have that desire fulfilled. And once you've done that, what comes next? A choice. Once we have given illicit desires safe harbor... We will soon find ourselves making wrong decisions that feel right. But here's the point that I really want to hammer home. Before you make that choice, before you make that decision, what has already happened? What water has already gone under the bridge? You've spent time meditating on, thinking about, and entertaining illicit desires. Sin rarely just happens out of nowhere. It doesn't just occur in a vacuum. We choose the things we want. And our wants are often cultivated and cherished by us in secret. So the war against sin begins in our belly and our imagination. We must guard ourselves. But we're not mere animals, driven only by our impulses, only by our feelings and our urges. No, we are thinking creatures too. So it's not just kind of hidden, illicit desires we've got to be careful about. It's also secular thinking. Thought patterns that mirror the... Oh, I went the wrong way, didn't I? Thought patterns that mirror the world's way of thinking also easily lead us into sin. I use the word secular in the main point because I wanted to communicate this idea of not thinking like Jesus, not thinking like God, but thinking like the world. We have to be careful Anytime we're thinking like the world. I mean, consider Solomon's situation. Look at verse 3. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Solomon's actions, though they seem outlandish to have a thousand wives, it actually makes a ton of sense from a political perspective. This is the sort of thing that ancient kings did. You marry princesses from other countries, and what does her daddy not want to do? Attack you. (laughs) This establishes a strong political life. It makes sense. But that doesn't make it right. We need to be careful not to make biblically questionable choices because of efficiency, common sense, or popularity. Efficiency seems to be the most important value in 2023. You probably hear the word efficiency a lot at work, don't you? The fact we hear it so much from the world means we should probably be wary of it. 
I mean, I do love a good potato peeler. I looked up, our potato peeler drove me crazy. I, I could never, like if I was doing the carrots or whatever, I could, it would flip around. So I went on CNET or somewhere and I found the highest rated potato peeler in America. And I cranked out like $35 for a potato peeler. That's how important efficiency was to me. And this tool, I, I'm happy to peel potatoes and carrots now because of the efficiency of this thing, right? It's more efficient than a plain old knife, especially. It's a time saver. But efficiency can also be a sneaky way of saying the end justifies the means, right? Or just because something makes common sense to the world, just because everybody else does it or is adopting it, it doesn't mean that we should. Because we measure right and wrong by a different objective measure, namely the word of God. We measure wisdom according to God's character, according to God's actions. So what Solomon did seemed like common sense. It was efficient for making quick political alliances. It was common sense. All the kings who were kings did it. But it was wrong. So all of this began in private with feelings and with thoughts that were left unchecked. But there's another piece explicit in our text that I don't want you to miss. Go back again to verse 1. You have memorized by the end of the day. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the, king of, uh, the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which Yahweh had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon was warned. All of Israel was warned. In Deuteronomy, the Bible literally tells the kings of Israel not to intermarry with other nations and not to take many wives. But whom and what did Solomon trust? He trusted himself in this circumstance. When we trust our feelings and thoughts more than we trust what God has told us, sin's power over us grows all the more. Now, again, this applies to questions of pleasure, of possessions, and of prestige or position. It's easy to take this text and to think only about illicit sexual desires and the sins that spring forth from them. That would be an appropriate sermon from this text. But the same principle applies to our feelings and thoughts about things, possessions, and wealth. The same applies to our feelings and thoughts about our position and prestige, our success, our work, our jobs. The point being, just because you want something and it feels like what you need, or just because it makes sense, or just because your coworkers do it, or what everyone does, it doesn't make it okay. It doesn't make it good. Whom do we trust to tell us what is right? Our barometer of right and wrong is God's word. Take it or leave it. So when God's word tells me that something I want is wrong, but then I put my thoughts and feelings above God's word, the results are going to be disastrous every time. That sin that has taken root in my belly and my imagination and mind, it's about to blossom. Its vines will soon be stretching through my whole life, ensnaring and entangling me. But to what end? When our thinking and our desiring have become shaped to the flesh and to the world, 
And when we trust our feelings and our thoughts more than we trust God's word, what happens next? As our secret internal life becomes warped in these ways, our affections for God wane and our love for idols grows. Verses 3 through 8 in our text. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to Yahweh his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and didn't wholly follow Yahweh as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. This is the bottom line. This is brass tacks. This is where sin sends us. Away from the one true God to the gods of this world. You were made to know God, to love God, to live with God, to enjoy God. But Satan is a thief, a liar, and a murderer who is trying to steal your life from you. Satan wants you to let sin have free reign so that you will worship him and the gods of this world instead. And you may not think you're worshiping other gods. I mean, you know, you're not bowing down to an idol, but you will be. You'll be worshiping the gods of our age, the gods of recreation and wealth and power, the gods of self-righteousness and self-justification. But all these gods lead to death and destruction, not only for you, but for the people who are closest to you. It doesn't just hurt you. It hurts the people that you love the most. Seminary professor of mine, Scott Haifman, described idolatry this way. He says, idolatry is the practice of seeking the source and provision of what we need, either physically or emotionally, in someone or something other than the one true God. It is the tragically pathetic attempt to squeeze life out of lifeless forms that cannot help us meet our real needs. Every sense of need that you have is ultimately a call to find your greatest satisfaction in Christ. Anybody hungry yet? Maybe you skipped breakfast? There's one nod. Thank you, Mary Frances. All right, EJ, you're good. You and me, we're together. Hudson, thank you. Y'all are going to go eat lunch here in 15, 20 minutes or so. And you're going to be hungry again in a few hours. You may feel lonely. And so you go spend time with a friend. Talk to your spouse. Go on a date. That'll satisfy you for a time. You may get the promotion at work that you've been working for and you feel on top of the world for a couple weeks. All of these things that satisfy us prove to be temporary. There is only one satisfaction that lasts 
through suffering, that lasts through want, that even lasts through death. And that is knowing that the God of this universe looks on you and says, I love you. I have a plan for you and I will never forsake you because of the work of Christ. So all of these lesser goods, all of these lesser things, even good pleasures and possessions and prestige, they are nothing in comparison to Christ. And when we begin to to lean on these earthly things to meet our needs, it is ultimately idolatry. And so the intention that, that we should have as Christ followers is to find in him our greatest satisfaction, our greatest hope, our greatest security over and above everything in our lives. But when we sin, our affection for that God begins to wane and our love for idols grows. So let's think about the cost of all this. While sin thrives in secret, its contagion and its consequences will start to pile up and they'll eventually spill out. So Solomon's attraction to unbelieving women happened early in his life. Uh, it went from private to public as he started marrying more and more women who didn't worship Yahweh. 1,000 women, to be precise. But it wasn't until he was old, verse 4 says, that his wives turned away his heart. Look again at verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to Yahweh his God, as was the heart of David his father. Who are these gods, these idols that get mentioned in the the following verses that Solomon, Solomon begins to worship along with his wives? Not surprisingly, the first one mentioned is Ashtoreth, a fertility goddess whose ritual rites included, let's call it ritual immorality. If you catch my vibe. Of course Solomon's interested in that. He had an undeniable attraction to these women. That's bad that the king of Israel would do something like that. But it gets so much worse. The list of idols ends with Molech, a god whose worship included human sacrifice. Sin, when you let it linger, when you let it grow, It always takes more than you want to give. For Solomon to have gone this far is a complete and utter disaster. And so what can we learn from it? Sin may start secretly, but it becomes contagious. Let me tell you, when Solomon builds a temple to a fertility goddess right outside of town, I can promise you he's not the only guy in town going there. Strip clubs aren't solicited only by their board of directors or stakeholders. Solomon gave into sin, and it caused other people to be tempted. The contagion spreads. So we can sin and and try to enjoy it in private, but when someone else sees you sinning, they're going to be tempted to do the same. This whole sermon series is about thinking about how we lead with our lives, looking at Solomon's leadership. Well, this is a leadership failure. The people under your care at work, at home or elsewhere, the people you have influence over, they see your life. And when they see you sin, it becomes very easy for them to justify the same kinds of actions. Sin is contagious, but it's more than contagious. Our sin may seem harmless 
but eventually it's not only going to hurt us, it's also going to hurt the people who are closest to us. So yes, Solomon was a good leader in some ways, but he was a terrible leader in this way. He not only caused other people to be tempted, but they suffered as a result of his sin. He built a high place for Molech where likely his own citizens would be killed. It's horrible. And here's what I'm getting at. The sin that we cherish and love and hide, it doesn't stay inside. Our sin won't stay contained. It will become public. It will spread to to others. It will hurt others. This is simply how sin works. But there's good news. There's good news for sinners like me and like you. If we belong to the Lord... He will not allow us to remain in sin. He will discipline us so that we repent. When God's people sin, he doesn't turn his back on us. He doesn't forsake us. Even Solomon, the crazy things that he did, he doesn't forsake Solomon and turn his back. No, God is a good father. And like any good father, he disciplines us. Why? To warn us away from idolatry. To warn us away from sin's contagion and consequences. And to bring us back into an experience of his love. That's what he did with Solomon. Look at verses 9 through 13. Yahweh was angry with Solomon. Because his heart had turned away from Yahweh, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he didn't keep what Yahweh commanded. Therefore, Yahweh said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem. That I've chosen. If y'all remember back in First Samuel or Second Samuel seven, God made a promise to David about Solomon. What did He say? He says, "When your son commits iniquity, I will not leave him, but I will discipline him as a son." And that's what we see God doing here, inflicting great pain on Solomon, warning him away from his sin. And this discipline is remarkably severe. Israel, the kingdom of God, is going to be torn into two different kingdoms. Eventually, the temple is going to be destroyed. But does God abandon Solomon? Does God forsake him? No. He applies pain to warn him away from sin. Like a child reaching for a hot pan, causing them pain to warn them from the danger of that action. God will not let his children get away with sin. So you may think that the sin that you've kept so well hidden. You may think that it will remain private, contained, safe, but it won't. Either God will discipline you while you've still got it hidden, or it will break out and cause more damage than you can imagine, and then he will discipline you. The fact is God won't let you remain in sin. So this is the warning. You will never get away with sin. Whatever's hidden away will come to light in a very unpleasant way. I have to tell you that because I love you. Jesus tells us the same thing in Luke chapter 12. He said this. 
Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Here we are again with hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you said in the dark shall be heard in the light. Whatever you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Hidden sin inevitably comes to light through its contagion, its consequences, and God's discipline. It tempts the ones we love. It hurts the ones we love. And if you belong to God, God will discipline you so that you return, repent and return to him. Now, if you've been listening to this text and listening to this sermon, there's probably only one question on your mind. If this happened to Solomon, the wisest man to have ever lived, how in the world am I going to avoid the same situation? Well, we're going to talk about that more in depth next week, but I'll give you a preview. So I told you about my time in college when I was excelling in hypocrisy. How did that story end? Well, as I preached week after week, I could feel the tension and friction between what I was preaching and how I was living. I mean, I was still, every Sunday, preaching God's word, and I was preaching the truth, but I could feel God pressing me and disciplining me in the form of a deep sense of guilt and internal dissonance. Increasingly, as I was preaching, there was a whole other thought process in my head where I was seeing my hypocrisy. I was seeing my shame, and I couldn't stand it. So I made my sin public. I confessed it to others, and I sought help. I knew that hidden sin would be found out, that the hidden thing would be made public. So I cut out the middle myth, and I confessed my sin to God and others. Practically speaking, I quit preaching for a long time. I didn't need to be in a pulpit. I joined a church, and I told the leadership of that church my situation, my struggle, my sin, and I asked for help. I asked for their love, and I asked for their guidance. So what about your hidden life? What about your struggle with sin? You need not wreak havoc in your life and in the lives of those you love. If you continue in sin, it will spread to others. It will hurt others, and God will discipline you, perhaps even severely. So, brothers and sisters, today, believe the good news and repent. God's arms are open to sinners. Turn away from your sin to him. Hidden sin inevitably comes to light through its contagion, consequences, and God's discipline. So confess your sins. Confess them to God. Confess it to a brother or sister and return from your idolatry to the one true God who gives life, joy, peace, and freedom through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. I know how some of you feel right now. Because I used to get dressed on Sunday morning, and I'd dress up like a preacher, and I'd shave, and I'd do my hair, and I'd drive out, and I'd meet with the leadership of a church, and I'd shake their hands, and I'd smile. And I was a liar. And I knew it. I was a hypocrite. Because I wasn't living in my private life in a way consistent with what I showed on Sunday morning. So I know how some of you feel this morning. If that's where you are, make it public. That's all you have to do. Confess your sins. Come talk to me. I'd love to hear about it. Our elders or a deacon or or somebody that you trust here, don't let your sins stay hidden. That's when it gets really dangerous. You bring it out into the light. You confess it to God. You confess it to your brothers and sisters, and you deal with it. And that's how healing 
and growth begins. So this is a safe space. I've been there. I know how you feel. And we got a room full of people that have been in that same place too. Don't hide it anymore. Confess your sins. Repent and find the peace of knowing you're forgiven. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my friends, my brothers and sisters here this morning. And I want to pray especially for those who've been doing exactly what I did for so long. They're lying lying to, to everybody here and maybe even to themselves because in their hearts... They've entertained thoughts and desires, and perhaps they're even participating in them, and they know it's wrong. Holy Spirit, we do pray that you would apply the merciful discipline of that internal dissonance, of that guilt and shame, so that they would confess their sins. Lord, we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would protect us that you would protect our children and our loved ones against sin and the idols of the world. Help us to know and to think and to feel in a way that is shaped to your scriptures, to your heart, so that we would live lives that are a blessing to our neighbors and bring glory to you. We know that our guilt and shame have been washed away in the work of Christ. Holy Spirit, set us free from the power of sin as well. Sanctify us in the name of Christ. As we pray in his name, amen.